Hey, I want to make sure everybody's got a worship guide. If you don't have a worship guide, put your hand up and we will make sure that you get a hold of a worship guide. Um, everybody needs one of these. The very first question, we're going to start off with that very first question straight away. And you will need your cell phones for this, your, uh, your Android devices, dare I say it out loud, and you'll need the other ones as well. But uh, you'll need your cell phone because the very first question is this. How would you define strength? How would you define strength? And uh, I want you to text your response to me now. Okay, there you go. It's not hard. Just telephone numbers inside there, 303-601-6349. How would you define strength? And while you're doing that, I'm going to introduce a few things inside here, and we'll dive inside here. So there is this uh, entrepreneur and the Values Institute out of Santa Ana in California who focused on brands. And they were looking at these brands and saying, how do you know this brand is strong? And what it is about this brand that makes it strong? And here are the top 10 results. Meanwhile, you are with your phone right now texting me what strength is, right? So you see how we're multitasking? It's really good. I see one person pulled out their phone. I'm encouraging more than two, three. This is good. Three texts coming through. All right, so this is the top 10 of what they said, looking at this, the brands. And I'm going to tell you the brand because I'm not going to ask you to guess. It'll take forever we try to do that. Amazon, number one. They're number one. Their strongest branding is because they believe that they get personal. And it's true. You can't browse anything in Google without it appearing somewhere that you've been in Amazon. You looked at something. I looked at a battery backup system for a computer. And now everywhere I go on the internet, it appears everywhere and tells me, go back to Amazon. They are very personal, too personal. Coca-Cola, number two, because they sell happiness. And I don't know if you've seen that advert where that, that lady is like diving through the air, chasing that bottle of Coca-Cola, and I think, she's happy. Yes, I need that too, so it sells happiness. FedEx, number three, they live up to their promise, at least they try to. Apple, number four, keep it cool and fun. I know, we're hoping they do one day. Target, I know there's some people here, love Target, Practically, you have to go there every single week, not saying Pastor Jessica. And it is to design an experience is what they believe as well. Six is Ford, stay consistent. That's what they'd like to believe. Number, nine, number seven is Nike. They can have a can-do attitude, which is what we need in this church as well. Uh, Starbucks, they forge connections. This is, their, this is what makes them strong. strong. Uh, Southwest Airlines, apparently, that they serve up quirky. Um, I'm not quite sure. I read a little bit about it, but serve up quirky. I, I don't think it's really working for them anymore. And Nordstrom, because they focus on the customer. Then I thought, why don't we add Boulder Church right to this list? Number 11. Maybe we could be actually A, so it's before number one. And so I thought, Boulder Church. And what makes Boulder Church, the brand, really strong is that we change all the time, every day. In about five minutes, we'll change again. We're constantly changing. And you're like, no, that's not what it is. It's, of course not. It's live love, right? Oh, that was close. Everybody was worried. Could it be that we're going to change again? Maybe. But live love is definitely our strength inside here. And then I was comparing that, and I was looking at consumer reports. And consumer reports are always very delicate and very difficult because they're based on us, and, uh, and we have some very different opinions about what is good and what is not. And I was looking at cars, and don't get offended with what I'm going to share. Um, but the top cars, Audi and Subaru, those are the top cars according to Consumer Reports. I don't believe that. It's not true. Middle, Toyota and Volkswagen, kind of like, oh, nearly there. And then the bottom, Cadillac and the Jeep. 
I know, you love your Jeeps. You know, everybody's like, please give me a Rubicon so that I can pretend to climb over. I don't actually understand jeeping. It must be a really exciting thing to go at three miles an hour over a rock. I mean, just like, oh, look at that suspension. Oh, look at that, come down again. Oh, here we go again. Now we're going down the hill. Now we're going back up. And it must be exhilarating to, to do that. No, uh, of, no, no, it's, of course it's a lot more fun. It's like, I can, I can feel my heart racing already. Um, maybe if we went two miles an hour, it'd be like, Woo! So uh, yes, jeeping apparently is a very exhilarating experience to go very slowly with blindfolds on. So that's how it works inside this. So let's see what you guys decided is strength because this is actually part of it. So here we go. We've got resilience. It's pretty good. We've got courage. Uh, oh, this is good. The ability to choose and apologize from your heart and mean it. Huh. Huh. See that? That's really good. That's good. Uh, innovative, strategically led, creatively driven. Oh my goodness, this L is just going to write a paragraph here. I'm just going to ignore him, Ryan. Um, and then <laughs> uh, B, by releasing myself to God, uh, the Torah, loving God, indicating optimal, optimal neutral health, the ability to overcome challenges. Faith, without faith, there is no strength. Keep on trying when you feel like you're giving up. The ability to stand alone, to resist outside pressure. Strength is the ability to be resilient. Run real fast. Wow, all right, that's great. Somebody just sent me smiley faces because they have no social life. Um, <laughs> willingness to sacrifice, that's strength. The ability to weather emotional ups and downs and stay true to who you are. Going forward despite all things, weighing who you are and holding you back. Somebody sent me a little muscle, like a little uh, bicep, because uh, they don't know how to type. Um, it's a generational thing. Not saying that, Alex. Uh, and then <laughs> defines who we are, restraint, no problem at all. That's what strength is. Being unafraid of being who you are, unapologetic of your emotions. Uh, don't say it was from me. Oh, what did you say? Heart strength. Good. I won't say it's from you. Good. And the power to effect change. And the text keeping going in. I'm going to ignore the one that includes balloons. Strength, as you heard from what you said here, is really pulling us all together and we all crave and want strength. And in truth, when we look at this series now, we're in Daniel right now, we're looking through resilience. We've only got two more weeks and we cover the whole book of Daniel. It's kind of been a whirlwind of trying to cover this entire book inside here. But as we look at strength inside here in these two weeks, today in particular, we're looking at the chapters five and six, we were looking at strength. But I wanted to recap in case you haven't been here before and you can see where we've come so you understand why strength is important to look at today. And it is about overall resilience, because I want you, by the end of the series of Daniel, to feel that you have grown in your resiliency, that you feel that you're a stronger people, and that you have strength, and your courage, and your patience, and all of that comes from God. So, it is unpacked during the week in Daily Walk, and I hope you looked at that, but Daniel's chapters one to four are the very first beginning of the book. They deal with all sorts of great things, but as I try to articulate clearly to you guys, it really talks about the story of Nebuchadnezzar. And in Nebuchadnezzar, his walk with God and eventually him assenting and saying, I do believe in God and I do engage and he is my God. And I left this question for you. The question was, what are you waiting for to be able to do the same thing? What are you waiting for to embrace that God is the God who you follow? And this is something you have to wrestle through inside. Then we looked at Daniel 7, 8, because remember, we're going in chronological order. And in chronological order, Daniel 7, 8, we dealt with all those great prophecies and he teaches us patience. 
And the question was, who gives you value in your life? Who gives you value in life? God gives you value in life. Next week, if you are a, if you are a skeptic, if you have struggles with your faith and your hope, if you're not too sure about whether the Bible's reliable, you have to come next week. Because next week, we'll look at Daniel chapter 9. And I'm telling you, Daniel chapter 9 ties up all of the book, all the way back to the very beginning. And you can go through this with the daily walk, study it every single day, prepare, ask your questions, even text me your questions. You have my telephone number now, it's in the worship guide. Send me your thoughts about it, we will engage it. But Daniel chapter 9 will address any skeptical issues you may have, any foundations you may have inside there, and it answers the question, the tension that Daniel's living in. So when we get to 5-6, which is today, we have to remember that Daniel's intention. He, he heard that dream, he had the first visions, he was in his 70s, now he's close to his 80s and mid-80s, and he's in this age, and he's listening, and he's saying, God, I just don't understand what happened inside there. I don't understand that. And he has to wait nine years before Daniel 9 comes on the scene and he gets an answer that helps him understand all the tension that he's living inside. So it takes us to question number two, which is the main question that we're gonna look at today. What does a strong character look like? What does a strong character look like? Mark Johnson, um, he's, he's away with family this weekend. Uh, he gave me this book and uh, it's called The Road to Character by David Brooks. I followed David Brooks. Um, in, he's on Twitter, he's a New York Times uh, opinion writer, and really worth following him as well, looking at the stuff that he wrote, but he wrote this book, Road to Character. And I just want to say that if any of you have read a really good book recently, and you're thinking that I should read it, buy it, give it to me, it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm good with that, I'm good with that. But make sure you've read it. I, I'm not a real fan of, hey, I saw this book, the cover looks really good, so I bought it for you. And no, I want you to read it so that we can then discuss it. That'd be really good. So just feel free. I prefer hardback, just so you know, because um, quality, feel of the book, you know, this paperback stuff, nothing to it. So this book, Road to Character, I read it. You should read it. It's fantastic by David Brooks. And he opens with this illustration about VGA Day in August 15, 1945. And he says that they were listening to a radio broadcast. And the radio broadcast had... And these are people that maybe you don't know who they are. Frank Sinatra, Marlene Dietrich, Cary Grant, personal favorite of mine, love everything he's done, Betty Davis, and the host was Bing Crosby. And they were summarizing the end of World War II. They were summarizing on this radio show, all of these actors. And Bing Crosby, towards the end, he said this. Today, though, right? Today, though, our deep feeling is one of humility. Isn't that incredible? And this is how he describes victory over World War II. Our deep down feeling is one of humility. You compare that characteristic, that character, with today, where we jump up and down over a two-yard goal, like it was like victory, like we beat everybody in the entire world over that two-yard goal. And where would that humility exist inside there. I watch games. I, I went to Vista Ridge School and they, they have the soccer games and I watch how other schools support teams. And I have a rule that, you know, when somebody scores a goal, you clap. You're like, hey, that church, their school, they scored a goal, good on you. Our school scores a goal, good on you because we support everybody. But I notice how some people are like, boy, if somebody scored a goal, they entered into states of depression. 
They had to go huddle, see a counselor, come back and say, okay, I'm ready for the next part of the game. And I was like, seriously, you know, we've got, we've got, we've got this edge about us that maybe is a problem we've got to work through and see somebody about this inside there. But if you compare 1950s and the character of men and women in the 1950s to today, it is quite stark in the difference between there. In the 1950s, you would never have somebody wearing a t-shirt saying Boulder Seventh-day Adventist Church. They wouldn't. There was no branding of t-shirts. Nobody would have, like, come see the One Project, I wear a t-shirt all the time. They had no exclamation marks on the typewriter. You're like, what's a typewriter? I know. <laughs> Google it. <laughs> Google it. But they had no exclamation marks. It wasn't like, you know, you write a sentence, da 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 this is really important inside here. Uh, they had no sympathy rib ribbons. They had no vanity license plates. They had no bumper stickers on the back of their car saying, my kid's smarter than your kid. Uh, my kid goes to this special school, and they're just such an amazing child, and your one's not. They had nothing like that, because it wasn't about that. In fact, when you looked at popular culture, which is today, everybody is constantly saying to you, you're special. You're just perfect as you are. You're so great. You're amazing. You don't have to change. In fact, just be whoever you want to be. Yes, you're a cocaine-smoking addict. It's okay. You were created to be an addict. Just be free. You know, this is what happens with the generation today that's been pushed on them, saying, you don't have to grow in anything. In fact, there's even a gospel being taught in churches that you can just trust yourself because you are the best judge of yourself. You know everything yourself, and so just trust yourself. And this gospel of trusting yourself means that we have no longer any humility. We have no longer any kind of strength in our character. There is even a belief that there is nothing really to talk about when it comes to sin. And we never talk about sin. Because sin's a really weird word. Let's not talk about sin. Sin's actually just a, a word, three letters, and uh, it's a metaphor, and it sits over here, and we know it's real, but let's not discuss that. But in truth, if you want to be a person of character, a man, a woman of character, you have to embrace that sin exists. I didn't say embrace sin. I said embrace that it exists, and only God can transform you, and only God can make that change. So we're going to dive into chapter 5 of Daniel here, because I believe that you will see a road to characters. Daniel's actually grown inside here. You're going to watch somebody who has gone through a crucible of life, who through that crucible of life understands what it is to rely on God. And I know that you've probably read Daniel 5 like at least once a day, because you've done the daily walk. Yes, good. <laughs> Maybe chapter 6 as well. And so you're thinking, is Daniel 5 all about a political career of Daniel? Could be. Is it about the fall of Babylon or the, the strategic military strategy, one that existed, one that didn't, didn't? Maybe. Is it about Belshazzar versus Belshazzar? I don't know if you picked up on this, but, but the king at the time in Daniel chapter 5, his name is Belshazzar. Daniel in chapter 1 was given the name Belshazzar, but he changed to Belteshazzar to kind of mock the Babylonians in the same way. But in truth, it's Belshazzar versus Belshazzar, the king and Daniel head to head. It could be about that. Was it also about how to throw a party? There are some clues, definitely about how to throw a party. But the strength of it, of the whole chapter, is about a man who has character, forged in the crucible of life understanding who God has called them to be and being faithful to that. So Babylon's coming to an end, absolute disaster, 
Nebuchadnezzar, this great king. Remember, he has set up this empire. He passes it on to his son, Nabodius. His son, Nabodius, loses the empire slowly, and then he eventually says to his son, Belshazzar, hey, um, they've got me everywhere. <laughs> they surrounded me. I'm going to go to Arabia uh, because all the other kingdoms have been taken. I'm going to go live there, and you take care of Babylon. And that's what he ends up doing. His son ends up taking care of it. So you end up with a king thousands of miles away. You end up with Babylon over here, run by Belshazzar, and he's on the throne. And no one believed, here's a little side note, no one believed that Belshazzar was real. When they read the Bible, historians would say, Bible's not reliable, it's fictitious. No, there's no historical records of this King Belshazzar. Everybody had records of Nabodius, but nothing of Belshazzar until 1861, when an archaeological dig starts to find all these scrolls from Babylon, and inside there, they discover that Belshazzar existed. And at that point, they started to wrestle back, and every commentary that ever said that Belshazzar was right was now ratified in the past because they had found the evidence that the Bible, in fact, was ahead of its time spoke the truth, gave the correct name, and is a reliable form of inspiration to us. I don't know if you saw this, Christopher Sanders sent me this text the other day um, where he'd read this article and, and I shared it with our life group here about the En Gedi scroll, it was about three weeks ago, where they had the En Gedi scroll, it was, they found it, it's 2,000 plus years old, but they couldn't read it because it was so burnt and damaged, and then this new technology came along and they were able to unravel it with this new x-ray machine and they read it, and it is the book of Leviticus, and it is the oldest version of the Leviticus that they've ever found, and it is identical, word for word, of what we have today. Isn't that incredible? You can read about it in NPR and CNN, and you can read about it online, but the En Gedi scroll, this is just phenomenal stuff, because sometimes you look at the Bible and say, ah, is it really reliable? I don't know, some guy wrote it, can I really test it? But when you start to find all that science can do to actually bring this together, you start to realize that there is strength inside here. So, the Bible, never underestimates inside here, but Daniel chapter five, verse one, turn with me in your Bibles, grab them out of your pews, page 827, page 827. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. And there's a huge party there, and this is what it says. Then King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the front of the household. This is a huge party for him. And you have to ask yourself, why did he throw this party? And some people speculate and think that it's because he was looking at the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah had said that Babylon would rule and that some while, after 70 years, Babylon would be destroyed. And they think that he did the math and he wasn't very good at math, and he missed the date, and he said, it's fine, we, you see, we beat the prophecy, so let's party. Other people, which is what I actually believe, is that he was trying to be defiantly decadent against God. That's why he pulled in all of the temple cups, and he said, forget this, I have this God, I'm gonna celebrate this, and he went straight away as best as he can. I feel that's what the text actually leans towards. So everyone's invited to the party. It's like going to a baby shower at this church. Everyone gets invited. Somebody doesn't turn up because they didn't read their email. And then they're like, nobody loves me. They don't care. I'm like, read your email. Read your email, we, we send it out to you, we invite you to this all the time. If you don't know, it's because you're not reading your email. It's in my spam folder. <gasps> yes, I shall come to your home and I shall fix your spam folder because that's what I do. I take care of your spam folder. 
Look at your own spam folder. Look at your drafts folder. Look at your trash folder. Read your email. Get involved in that kind of stuff. And this is what happened. They had a party. Everybody was invited, except for Daniel, and who I believe was also Nebuchadnezzar's wife, Belshazzar's grandmother. They were not invited. They didn't get the email, but they could hear the party was taking place. Now, this is different. They were not invited. So they can feel like, why am I not valued? Uh, why am I pushed away? I'm kind of ignored through this entire thing. You get down to Daniel chapter 5, verse 5 here, and all of a sudden, immediately it says there, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And whenever you look at the fingers of God, all through the Bible, and there's tons of references inside here. There's creation in Psalms 8.3, there's the plagues in 8.19, and commandments in 31.18, and then Christ casting out the demons in Luke 11.20. You get the classic one, though, the one that everybody remembers in John chapter 8, where Jesus, with his finger, writes on the sand, right? The finger of God, the power to change the situation the power to confront you about something going wrong in your life, something that requires change to take place. Whatever that is, God has the power just with his finger. So then what happens as a result of seeing the writing on the walls is that the queen mother's called in, verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king, lords comes in, and then she says in verse 11, I love this, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And that night... Everything turned around. Daniel comes and explains the truth to them, and you see it goes from the head of gold to the chest of silver. It goes from Babylon to Medo-Persia. It goes from the strong gold to the softer silver inside. It goes from the lion to the bear. It goes all the way through. It takes place, and because somebody spoke truth into the life of the king, and it is never easy to speak truth into somebody else's life, is it? It's easy to speak truth to yourself because nobody hears it. But it's never easy to have to really speak heavy truth into somebody else's life. But here's a principle. Um, I remember years ago, I had to have a conversation of ministry with somebody. And uh, this, this pastor, this female pastor, she was very upset about something that had taken place. And I had to make a ministry decision. And so I said to her, you have two options right now. Number one... I tell you the truth. And God willing, we're still friends afterwards. Number two, you trust me and we stay friends because this is actually important change that needs to take place in your life. She opted for number two, which I was very thankful for because number one would have been very hard to take, very difficult to explain, very difficult to comprehend and to take in. The difficulty is that we do believe in accountability, right? We do believe that we should hold people accountable. But sometimes we feel that we should go talk to people who haven't asked us for accountability and share with them what we think they should be accountable about. In the story of Daniel, the kings always come forward and say, Daniel, tell me what it is that is the hard truth that I need to hear. Daniel, come and explain to me what it is. There is a relationship that exists. And Daniel, because he's faithful to God, he gives them two options, but he always goes for option number one because they said, you, I asked, you asked me for it. Then I will lay it out for you. And if we could do that, we would actually help each other a lot more inside there. Daniel chapter 5, verse 29 says this, that Daniel was then, as a result of telling him that the kingdom was going to be taken, was promoted to third in the empire. Remember, Nabodius is in Arabia, Belshazzar's in Babylon, he's number two, Daniel's number three, third in the empire. This is the one time you don't want a promotion, 
right? You're like, hey, uh, you know, I, I don't need to be third. We're going to be, you know, taken over tonight, and they're going to look to the kings and the leaders and kill them all. I, you know, just bypass that promotion. Leave me out here at the party. I don't need to be part of this. But he accepts it. And amazingly, in Daniel chapter 6, the chapter that follows right through, Darius looks at Daniel and holds him close. Because I believe that when Darius looked at Daniel, he saw a man of character. He saw somebody who had strength inside him. He saw somebody who was consistent and resilient as who was supposed to be. And so he said, I will embrace you. And it says in Daniel chapter 1 verse 2 that over them, these 20, 120 leaders, three presidents stood of whom Daniel was one of them. So Daniel ended up becoming one of the three leaders in the entire new empire. I know, I know. You're wondering, like, how did this happen? Well, there's this great verse, and it's verse, chapter th- verse 3 in chapter 6, and this is what it says there, and I think you need to read this as well. In your Bibles, my Bibles as well. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. This phrase, excellent spirit, is often translated as exceptional character instead of excellent spirit. He had an exceptional character. And because of that character, he is promoted to be top over the entire thing. Chapter 6, verse 3 continues all the way through. And suddenly you realize that there is a tension inside the land as well because they're not happy about this. And jealousy arises again. Poor Daniel. Everywhere he goes, wherever he ends up, he's down at the bottom. He gets promoted, pulled up to the top. And somebody comes along and says, I'm unhappy about that. I don't like the fact that you've been called to be a leader. I want somebody else. I want myself to be the leader. And you may remember when we looked at Daniel 3. And Daniel 3 and Daniel 6 are mirror chapters. The two great chapters of character development, two chapters of crucible development inside here. But in chapter three, the three men who, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they went through a step of three stages, right? They would, and this was a general way to attack them. They would say, there's a group, there's a family, there's some individuals. So they said, there's these Jews, there's certain Jews, actually there's only three of them. And we're really upset about the three. So they would focus all the way down. But this story here, there's a new method, a new way, a new culture, a new way of doing this. And this is what they do. They would see something good and say, this is a good thing. Then they would redefine what that good thing is. And then they would say, busted. (laughs) You ever done that? You ever played Monopoly with someone? And you're playing and all of a sudden there's a new rule inserted in the game halfway through? That there's, have you ever done this? This is the way we play Monopoly sometimes. We, We play it with the stock market. Right, so what you do is you, you roll, and then you put that money in the, jail, in the um, parking lot that goes in the center, right? And that becomes a stock market. Then you have to roll the dice. It either goes up or down. If it goes up, you win, like double of what's inside there. If it goes down, everybody gets that. <laughs> Terrible. But those rules are only inserted when you're losing. Right? So people change the rules halfway through. It's like in Boulder here. I don't know if you know this. The good rule is that you should park your car. The change is that if you park between 8 to 12 inches from the curb, it's okay, but 13, you get a ticket. Busted. But you didn't know that. I have people I know who got that. <laughs> Just saying. And so maybe you, you, the good news is that you preach about Jesus. And then somebody comes along and says, ah, nah, preaching about Jesus is not enough. Busted. <laughs> 
you know, rules change. You never know, you just suddenly find out. Well, Daniel is in the same kind of thing here. He prays to God every single day, at least three times a day. Somebody comes along and changes the rules and says to him, uh, no, you can only pray to this God now. And Daniel is busted. And this is how things take place inside his life. He's in his mid-80s right now, Daniel, okay? Remember this. He's a wise man, old man. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. And I love this verse. This is a verse you need to underline in your Bible, even underline in the Bibles in the pew so that if anybody opens it again, they can find this verse and say, wow, that's an amazing verse. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. When Daniel knew, see that? When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had his windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. When he knew, when he knew that they had signed a decree that he can no longer pray to God, he goes to the same spot that he's done every single time. He prays to God and he gives thanks. When you're in the midst of something deeply difficult in your life, and his life is on the line. This is like a Daniel 3, a Daniel 6 chapter situation here. His crucible is about to take place. This is where he says, I give thanks to God. You have to be settled with God to know your ground so that you're not moved, you're not shaken when these things happen. Policies and rules are often made in systems, even like the church, without a local context. When you make a policy and a rule without a local context, you misunderstand the principle of what God is calling you to. So, I'm not proposing anarchy here, and I'm not proposing rebellion just yet. No, I mean, never, of course, never. I am proposing, though, that we embrace the reality that policies have to be connected to a local context. They have to make sense on the ground. They actually have to have common sense. Great idea, novel idea, common sense behind them. I don't know if you know this, but in the Colorado, in the state of Colorado, there is an amendment, Amendment T, that's going through. Amendment T is basically addressing the fact that in 1876, there is a law in this, in this state here that if you get arrested um, for a crime, you can go to prison or you can become a slave, right? Now, nobody's enforced slavery since 1876 in that time, but it still exists on law. So the amendment T is to say, uh, that's got to be dropped. We've got to drop that little slave sentence inside there. We've got to change the way that Colorado was. And just in case somebody wants to enforce that one day by some bizarre reason. So they've got to remove this inside there. Common sense says that there is religious freedom. Common sense says that there is no force. I posted this quote on, um, on Facebook this week. Um, it's a quote by Ellen White. Ellen White is one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. She has a lot of good stuff to say, great writer. Uh, and this is what the quote said. Force is the last resort of every false religion. Now, I did not react to the comments underneath because the comments were interesting. Because you see, the context is that our church is discussing right now, how do we implement a policy all the way down that affects even the local church, right? That's the context. That's the tension inside there. That's the context going on. But there are all sorts of other issues 
at play all the way through. So I posted this, and I wanted to see the reaction. And some people were like, immediately, their mind is, oh, this is an accusation against the church. And some said, no, this is not against the church. And some said, this is just common sense. And here's the difficulty. Where your heart is with God affects how you respond. Where your heart is with God affects how you respond. I'm with God, and I'm with the Bible, and I'm with this, and I understand this, and I will stay faithful to God no matter where the path takes us. So when I read that sentence, force is the last resort of every false religion, I'm like, hallelujah, absolutely, for anybody, for whatever religion you want to call it, always, force is not the right. Common sense says that God never forces us. The policy of salvation is not you have to do this to be saved. It is free and unwarranted. We don't even deserve it and we get to be saved. God says, I save you, I pull you, I pull you all the way inside here. So when you get to the lion scene, which is the famous lion scene that the kids made all those little activities for us today, you see that Daniel has reached this point in his life where he's like to the king, God has it. God takes care of it. And then you get to chapter 6, verse 19. And watch this, the reaction of the king. This is great. It's great in the comedy. It's great inside here. But it's the reality, the tension of the king as he knows he's been duped. Chapter 6, verse 19. Then at the break of day, the king arose and he went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den of lions, he cried out in a tone of anguish. And he said, Daniel, Daniel, has your living God, has he saved you from the lions? And Daniel says this, O king forever, my God sent his angel shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before the king and before God. Because he has consistent character in private and in public. This is who Daniel was. I love this story because this story here is a story of inspiration not only for us but a story of inspiration to Esther not that long further along the road. Because you think about it. Esther is reading Daniel. She understands the story of Daniel. She's like, Hmm, Joseph, Daniel, both went before a king. That Daniel went before a king. Man, somebody created a, a lion's den to kill Daniel. And what ended up is the ringleaders ended up inside the lion's den. Somebody's created gallows to hang me. Who ends up in there? The ringleaders that actually organized those gallows. So you can see that she had this hope of a person behind her who said, I am faithful to God and God will bring you through no matter what would have been inspirational to her. Question number three, our last question for this morning. So how do you develop a strong character? Because that's what we all need. We need a strong character. I'm gonna use a metaphor, and this is the metaphor, and I'm gonna ask you to even turn in the Bible to see this metaphor so that you understand that I wasn't the one who said this, but Jesus said this. It's in Luke chapter 12, verse 27, page 965, Luke chapter 12. So turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. And this is what Jesus says, talking to those who are anxious and worried, those who are maybe overwhelmed with their life. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. I often mind my myself out in my life just to make sure and check where things are. And I think you need to write this Bible verse, underline it, and you need to get, and don't leave that page, okay, because we're going to cross-reference. This is how you cross-reference your Bible. You read this verse, I'm going to show you another verse that kind of echoes this, and you're going to write that verse reference inside there. So God says this, sometimes you have to mind map everything that's going on in your life. And that's what I do in my life. I'll write like a circle, 
I'll draw a circle, and I'll write my name, and I'll describe myself, my character, who I am right there. Then I'll draw all that I'm responsible for. And these lines jot out, and they have circles, and I draw them out on the piece of paper. You get a larger and larger piece of paper, and you write everything, and then you write all the things that are facing you that are coming in and trying to change all that you're going through, the issues that you're facing with sin, the issues that you're facing with temptation, the issues that you're facing with pressures that you don't, are not doing well, and you write all this stuff out so you can see how overwhelmed you are at times. Because it is easy to become overwhelmed. But when you're overwhelmed, you have to say, God, what is it that you want me to do out of the chaos in front of me? How do I handle all the wheels, all the plates that are spinning at the same time? And God says, Look at the lilies of the field. I take care of them. I dress them. They look even more beautiful than Solomon's temple. Take the tension that you have and hand it over to me. I'll help you prioritize this out, break it all down into small pieces, and you will pull through it. And Daniel, I believe, embraced this wholeheartedly. So I read this other great quote by Ellen White that I'm going to share with you. And I'm going to share the second part of this because it's powerful. She says this, God has encircled the whole world with an atmosphere of grace. All right? Do you like the metaphor? Atmosphere of grace. It is as real as the air with which we breathe in around the entire globe. I love that. But these are the five words, the five words that she said before that. She said this, in the matchless gift of his son. In Jesus Christ, this is what it means, God has encircled the whole world with an atmosphere of grace, as real as the air, which when you breathe, covers the entire globe. That Jesus is right there all the time. And John 15 talks about this, saying, you abide in me, you stay connected to me, you'll always be there. So here's the second text. Remember, you're in Luke. You're going to write next to Luke, you're going to write this, Psalms 16, verse 8. And you're going to dive with me to Psalm 16, verse 8, page 501. Psalm 16, verse 8. And this is a text that you would have read in the Daily Walk, some of you, because we put, we're going through the whole book of Psalms as well, in little sections at a time, but Psalm 16, verse 8. David says this, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is my right hand, and I shall not be shaken. You love that? I have set the Lord always before me because he is my right hand and I shall not be shaken. When you start with God your day, whether you're lying down in your bed, whether you get out on the side of your bed and you kneel down, no matter what you face, if you started with God and you stay with God, he will help you to not be shaken. You stand on solid ground. You will be able to survive this. Look at the stories of John and Peter, who were what? The sons of thunder and the son of like, let me pick me first all the time. You watch their entire story and you get to the end. The son of thunder and the guy who always wanted to be first says, all you need to do is love the sheep and be with the Lord because inside him, everything can take place. So I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine with me. Men and women of character right? Imagine what government and business and church and schools and our homes and our families would be if we were men and women of character. If we had the humility to say, I'm nothing without God, and with God, God does amazing things inside me. People who live not for happiness, because that's fleeting, but for God with purpose and virtue. Imagine that. Imagine people who live for 
for truth, for purpose and virtue. Imagine people who are not shallow like veneer, but like real wood, then real wood that you can sand, and every time you sand it down, it becomes brighter and brighter and lasts for a lifetime. Imagine people who wrestle with sin and allow God to change us. Imagine people who no longer wear masks, who you see in public is who you see in private. Who you see in private is who you see in public. This is the character of strength that God is calling us to. This is the stuff that Daniel went through where he came out understanding what a circle of influence was, he understood what his community was, he understood what the church is. And it shattered the way that he lived his life. And people who didn't even know God would look at him and say, this is a man of character. This is a man worth being engaged. I've been sitting down with the Mapleton Steering Committee. This is the committee that has reformalized itself in our community, meets here at the church every month, and uh, they really are meeting because there's the development taking place next door. They want to address that. But I've been meeting with the committee members at different times, and, and I started to share my vision for that committee. I want it to last well past the development. I want it to be a steering committee that cares about the community on the hill. I've explained to them that this church here is their church. I am their pastor. Whether they believe in God or whether they've chosen a Christian path, I care. We care. All of us do. This is actually, it belongs to them. So we're going to have an open house at this church, January 14. We were thinking of January 7, but so close to the beginning of the new year, some people may be traveling back and forth, but January 14, um, there'll be a Sabbath morning here that'll be like nothing you've experienced before. It's called an open house. We're going to open this church up. We're going to invite the community to come and be part of this. We're going to hold a forum inside here after our worship service and talk about how this church here can belong and be part of what God has called us to. Because I care for this community, you care for this community, but this hill has this church as the center of it. And people need to come here and worship here and hang out here and hold their meetings here and be part of this place. And this place needs to belong to them just as much as it belongs to anyone. Because in truth, the church belongs to God right? That's what it does. We are privileged to be part of God's mission in this community. And this church belongs to God. When you go through that, and when you start to understand that, you understand that God is calling you to this heavy crucible. It means change in your life. It means you thinking about all those close to you and saying, God, when you pull me through this, am I going to be a better person? Yes, if I am with you. And God is calling us to form ourselves through the power of the Spirit. That's who we are. So I'm going to pray for you right now, and I'm going to invite the team to come and worship. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, each of us in here, in this room today, we're going through our own crucibles at different times and places. Lord, it's really beautiful to see Becky Carlisle in church, to see her smiling, to see her strength. God, through her crucible, be with her. Holy Father, you know that there are others inside here that struggle with their marriages, struggle with their parenting, struggle with their addictions, struggle whether they don't know whether they're going to make their job work or not, or whether they're going to have a livelihood in two, three months from now or not. God, their crucible is heavy. God, be with them. Send them an angel like you did to Daniel. Shut those lions by the side. May there be a visible form, whether it's just somebody who comes and holds them today. Somebody comes and embraces them and just says, hey, I love you and I miss you and it's great to see you. 
God, may we be forces of strong character in other people's lives. And then together, Lord, may we transform this place, knowing that you, Lord, are with us always.